So welcome to the fifth edition of The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie. I'm the Charlie part. And I'm the Kate part. And we are really, really excited, I guess would be the word, about today's interview. Because both of us, and I know you, Kate, have been longtime fans of John Irving. This was an interview for me where I was very much starstruck. A Prayer for Owen Meany is a really important book in my life. I reread it every two years. And like any great book, I feel like it understands me. And every time I read it, I feel like it understands me differently. I mean, maybe that's because my life has changed so much over the last 20 years. But I read it right after college when I couldn't quite figure out who I was. And I read it when I got sober. And I read it when I got married both times. I read it when I had kids. And I read it when my kids started to argue back. The language grows with me. The book means something different to me every time. And it puts words to feelings I didn't even know I had. So I'm a huge fan. And Owen Meany is a very, you're not supposed to define the word unique, but he is a very unique character and unforgettable character when you read A Prayer for Owen Meany. And and John will say that probably if you're going to start on John Irving novels, Owen Meany is the place to start. But The World According to Garp, Cider House Rules, which was made into such a great movie. A Widow for a Year, Last Night in Twisted River. John hasn't published in a while. He has a new book coming out in October, and I hope we will talk to him then. A book that has had a number of titles as he has gone through the progression (laughs) of writing this book. I think it's his 15th novel. He will tell you he has been translated into dozens of languages. And John is, is unique, and I look at him I think, Kate, as a, as a 19th century writer writing with 21st century vernacular. His novels are in form, I think, very similar to the great classic writers that he loves, like Charles Dickens and Thomas Hardy. But he writes about very contemporaneous issues, like abortion. Cider House Rules is thought to be sort of his abortion novel. A Prayer for Owen Meany is a novel that's very much involved with the Vietnam War. He writes about feminism, sex changes, but he does it all with a tenderness and underlying his books is a great sense, I think, of compassion for his characters. He's an extraordinary writer who has a different way of going about his novels. Just in these first five podcasts that we've done, Kate, I think we've learned a lot about the fact that writers approach their craft in such different ways. He's a meticulous plotter, and I think that's probably how he echoes the writers that he says he so admires. And you're right, he manages to take fairly interesting plot points, sometimes almost ludicrous plot points, and yet he writes about it with such realism that you're always willing to go along for the ride. And the other thing, John refuses to synopsize his novels. If you ask him, what's this novel about? He won't tell you, but he says, just read the first five pages. First five, I would say read the first 50 pages. And if you are not drawn in to his characters, to his point of view, to his sentences, which can be long, John, John makes liberal <laughs> use of a semicolon, but, uh, but it, it brings you in. You will find as you listen to John, as we talk to him, he's a slow talker. He's a deliberate talker, but he talks the way he writes, very meticulous in what he has to say and and very deliberate. So, our conversation with John Irving. 
John Irving, thank you for joining us. It's great to talk to you. John, one of our target audiences for this podcast, book clubs. And of the 14 novels you've written, if a book club had not yet sampled John Irving, what would you tell them would be the best threshold novel to get an understanding of your work? It is a fact, it's incontrovertible, that in the 35 or 36 languages I'm translated in and in English, a prayer for Owen Meany is the bestseller in all those languages. Sometimes when I have a, a new doctor or I make a, a new friend who's not read uh, anything by me, I'm faced with that same question. Well, where, where should I ask someone to start? And I often give them a copy of a prayer for Owen Meany since, well, that seems to be the one that appealed to most people. I want to quote you back to you for a second, because you write in Twisted River about Danny, who's also a writer. And you write, he was a craftsman, not a theorist. He was a storyteller, not an intellectual. Do you really not consider yourself an intellectual? I don't think of myself as an intellectual. For someone who needed five years to graduate from Exeter, for most people, it's a four-year school. And for someone who struggled as a student everywhere until I was in a, an MFA program in writing where all I had to do was write. So I, I don't think of myself as, as an intellectual of, in, of, of any kind. The, the judgment I exercise as, as a writer has everything to do with language and tone and pace, things that I would consider more in the in the world of drama than uh, I would consider them in the world of uh, intellectual reasoning. Uh, these are emotional things. Uh, I grew up around the theater. I was tempted uh, to be an actor, a stage actor. I liked the idea of impersonating or inhabiting another character. Before I learned to write and create characters of my own and realized that by so doing, by writing, I got to be all of the characters. The quote that Katie picked out is interesting, though, John. When, when you say Danny was a craftsman, a novelist has a vision all the time. He's, he's working with a vision. As you say, he's creating all the characters. So you must think of yourself as much more than just a craftsman, I would suspect. The vision of a novel, Charlie, doesn't take a great deal of time. You either see it or you don't. When I see a novel developing in the back of my mind and suddenly it's in the it's in the foreground of my thoughts like the word vision itself that's the only part of the writing process that seems to happen all of a piece a novel comes together as an idea for me having now done it 15 times i can generalize a little and say that the idea for a novel develops in somewhere between four or five days and or three or four weeks, the whole thing. I see it. I take some notes. I see the trajectory. I'm generally right. The filling in takes years. I spend more time rewriting than I ever do on a first draft. I've never felt very original. Well, maybe no writer feels original. I'm often surprised that not more writers say or admit that it was reading 
that made them want to be a writer in the first place. I'd done a lot of reading before I read a novel that made me wish I could have written it or I had written it and made me think that this was the kind of novel I wanted to write. If I had subscribed to the Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Faulkner worship, which when I was growing up was the fountainhead of American literature as something to be revered. If I'd only read Hemingway, Fitzgerald, and Faulkner, I would have thought of something else to do. I wouldn't have wanted to become a writer, especially in Hemingway's case. I loathed Hemingway. As a kid, I hated Hemingway. I regard him even more lowly now that I'm a senior writer, so to speak. I had models, and I felt that I was like a young painter imitating paintings before I found my way. And if, as a young writer, starting to write in the 1950s, in my case, well, Dickens and Melville and Hawthorne and Hardy, you know, these were pretty safe models to imitate because as a child of the 1950s, I couldn't sound like them if I tried. I did try. I did try to imitate the, especially the structures of their novels. It was a little frightening to me that most of my friends who read anything at all uh, in the world of sort of literary fiction hated those old writers. They liked Fitzgerald. They liked Hemingway. They, you know, so I thought I'm doomed. My models are people that my generation of friends despise. Those are my heroes. And those models haven't changed for me. John, was there a specific novel where you felt like you'd found your way or are you still looking for it? My first several novels. I thought it was odd that those novels all began with endings. I had last lines before I had first lines. I had partially formed last chapters before I knew what the first chapter was. I remember sending what I thought was going to be the first sentence of The World According to Garp to my then editor at Random House, Joe Fox. In The World According to Garp, we are all terminal cases. And I said, I think I've actually written a first sentence. And Fox sent me back a postcard which said, sounds like a last sentence to me, Joe. Well, he was right. But it wasn't really until the sixth novel, The Cider House Rules, when I recognized that I should just listen to what came first and recognize that I'm not making a religion of this. If I came up with a better last sentence, I'd take it. Uh, I wouldn't quarrel with the fact that it wasn't my first. And Cider House, in fact, was the first novel I wrote where I had two last sentences. And I can't even remember what the other one was because I chose the second one. The refrain, uh, what uh, Dr. Larch calls the orphans, princes of Maine, kings of New England, when they are anything but. It was only my sixth novel that taught me Listen to yourself, and it doesn't matter whether you get a first sentence or a last sentence first. And if you get two titles and two last sentences, lucky you. Uh, don't complain about it. Just make the right choice at the end. You mentioned a moment ago, John, 
that one of the authors you revere and that some don't is Thomas Hardy. He was one of the names you mentioned. And I remember once talking to you and you said that story is paramount. Stories are critical. And you said when talking about the mayor of Casterbridge, Hardy's great novel, in the first chapter, a man gambles away his wife. And I remember you adding, you know, that's not going to end well. So, John, do you have to hook them early? Do you have to hook a reader and engage them and get them to think, oh, my goodness, how, how is this going to go? Not only do I, I think you have to get somebody's attention quickly, but you also have to inject in the story something to be afraid of. And you won't be afraid of anything if you don't like someone. In other words, you've got to make someone appealing, likable, if not lovable, vulnerable. And then you've got to instill in the reader, uh-oh, what's going to happen? you got to find out what happens. But you won't care about what happens if you don't have an emotional investment in someone. And you're thinking in the back of your mind, oh, I hope it doesn't happen to them. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. John, what work of yours do you wish that critics and readers would reconsider? Well, the one you first mentioned, Kate, is is the place where I generally start. I think Last Night in Twisted River was a largely neglected novel. It's one of my best novels, I think. And to go back to your opening question, Charlie, it's the other novel that I sometimes decide somebody's going to begin with something of mine, let him begin with that. Come on, it begins with an accidental killing. And that accidental killing is going to lead to everything, right? So it has a good hook, to use your word, Charlie. So I think that's a good novel of mine with which to start. And it's a novel of mine that not so many people have read. It is one of my favorites. And, and I, I think it tells you a lot about writing, which is always interesting. And to come back to that, I remember Stephen King wrote a book, which I loved and Kate loved, on writing. It's one of the best. It's one of the best books ever. It's, it's really good. And one of the things I learned about him in that is he said, I have to write. It is just in me. Is it in you? And when did you realize, hey, I'm going to be able to do this and make a living at it? (laughs) 
Well, you asked that as if it were one question. It's really two. We've known each other, Steve and I, a long time. Envy, as as any honest writer would, his uh, productivity. I'm still writing a second or third chapter when he's finished a new book. It really gets to me. I was thinking as you said that about kids that take tests in college and that one kid who hands in the test like five minutes after it, it's been handed out and you're still on question one. Man, is he, is he fast. And he does his homework. He doesn't take any shortcuts. I realized pretty early on that I was going to have to do this. I was still in high school when I knew I would always need to do this thing, tell story. I'd always be writing a story. You know, I I wrote four novels before one of them finally sold enough copies to allow me to imagine, not yet believe, but imagine that I might be self-supporting at this. I always thought I would be teaching English and coaching wrestling. And I liked that okay. You know, the, the, the first novel did better than the second and the third. I didn't get uh, bad reviews because I hadn't sold enough copies to attract the attention of people who like to give bad reviews. And then along came The World According to Garp, and I was so unused to making money as a writer that um, I didn't really believe it was going to happen because it didn't happen until the fourth book and because I didn't really believe it for a book or two later. That is, I wrote The Hotel New Hampshire still I was reluctant to give up a teaching job. I thought no one would ever hire me again if I quit. It wasn't really till Cider House that I, I thought, okay, I can make a go of this. And that was the sixth. But I really, and to this day, I feel lucky that I, I got to make a living at the, the thing I love best. This is not my longest novel. And I'm still working on, on bringing it down. And this, I can truly say to you, is the last long one. I imagine these unwritten novels as boxcars in a train station without an engine. And when I finish the novel I'm writing, sometime before the unbound galley pages come back for me to proofread, I look at those boxcars in the station and decide then what the next train should be. And this was the last long train in the station. The other trains in the station are short trains. They look really short to me. They look like novellas to me, for God's sake. But I'm getting fond of the idea of truncating the length and complexity of the train. I'm purposely um, uh, choosing easier things. It's a little disconcerting to me at 79. Most of my friends who are still alive have been retired for a long time. I can't imagine retiring. I mean, I want to die with my head on my desk and the, the pen in my hand in the middle of uh, a sentence too complicated for any living soul to finish. I think that would be a good way to leave the table at, at my desk. I couldn't be happier if that's what happened. John Irving, Rapid Fire. John, book, audio, or e-reader? I still write in longhand. I use my laptop as little as possible. 
and generally detest it. It's a book. I spent a lot of time in other parts of my life in a car, and I used to spend a lot of time with books on tape on a treadmill or an exercise bicycle. And I think you can really appreciate a novel by listening closely. You can't skim if you're listening. And e-readers, no, no, no. Do you spend more time reading or writing? Oh, much more time writing now than reading. I'm grateful, Kate, that I was a really good reader as a teenager and in my 20s and into my 30s. I read a lot. And reading was a huge part of my development as a writer. But from the moment I became concurrently interested in writing screenplays and novels, I always had something to write. How about the most influential book in your life? Well, I've always said that Dickens's Great Expectations was the novel that made me want to be a novelist. But Great Expectations just was the first time I'd read something that I thought, oh, God, I wish I could have written that. John, the favorite book that you've enjoyed reading to your kids? There's no question what that one is. My stepfather first read it to me, and I loved it, and it made me love him. And it's uh, a novel called My Father's Dragon by Ruth Stiles Garnett. How about a revered book that you're sorry you read? A revered book? Oh, dear. (laughs) Oh, dear, there are too many to... This was supposed to be a, sh- a short <laughs> answer question and answer session. I don't know where to begin, Charlie. If you're young enough, you'll probably like Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. But I do not like Mark Twain. If you want to bore yourself to death, try life on the Mississippi. If you have trouble sleeping, don't take any drugs. Just start that book. Strangest foreign translation of the title of one of your works. The most difficult was the Cider House Rules. In some languages, German, for example, the Cider House Rules is all one word. And (laughs) you would have to hyphenate that word three times to get it on a book jacket. (laughs) Cederhusregelga is all one word. It doesn't fit on a book jacket. And it just sounds awful. The Germans came up with a really pretty good one, which sounds better in German than it does in English. But it also... It's very true to the novel in English, which makes me like it. The work of the Lord, comma, the contribution of the devil, Mm. which is a paraphrasing of what uh, Dr. Larch is always saying as an OBGYN about abortion, that in the rules of the day, in the law of the time, childbirth is the work of the Lord and abortion is the work of the devil. John, do you ever read your reviews? I don't finish all of them. I mean, I can tell when. And I know reviewers, some of them. I'm familiar enough with them now to think, oh, if it's him, I don't need to read it. Because that person is already on record for willfully misunderstanding me. My guiltiest reading pleasure is... I actually think, Kate, that that's probably a a good question for a younger person. But at my age, whatever pleasures I ever felt guilty about, I don't do them anymore. (laughs) So so I, I have to make up something. And the last one, John, in five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Gee, 
five words. You know me, Charlie. You you could have actually simplified that question and said, say anything at all in five words. (laughs) (laughs) Just see what you got. I mean, oh, boy. Let's see. (laughs) Now he's rewriting the five words. He's editing it. He's revising. He's already. Four, five, six, seven. So let's see. Um, oh, wait a minute. I think I see her away. <laughs> One, two, three. I got it. Sorry. I got it. Five words. Well, it was possible after all. What do I want the rest of my life to be? Not to be a burden. John Irving, an incredible writer. Dad, what did you get out of out of that interview? Well, I'm always fascinated by what John has to say, though he does say it slowly. I went back and looked at Last Night in Twisted River, which is one of our favorites, although not one of the better known of John's books, as he mentioned. His last sentence is, he felt that the great adventure of his life was just beginning, as his father must have felt in the throes and dire circumstances of his last night in Twisted River. Now, how do you take that sentence and build an entire novel (laughs) in front of it? I defy you to figure out how in the world you would even approach it. That's what amazes me about John and his craft, that he approaches it or has been approaching it most of his career that way. It's fascinating to me, too, because the last line of Garp, in the world, according to Garp, we are all terminal cases. Where does that line even come from? that that spontaneously pops into your head and you say, boy, I got to put that last and build everything backwards. He's clearly a meticulous plotter. He's clearly an architect sort of writer. Mm. He sketched everything Mm. out before he starts to write. I disagree. I think he is an intellectual. He claims not to be one, and I think he's wrong. He writes in Last Night in Twisted River that Danny doesn't consider himself to be one. I think he is one. He speaks multiple languages. He is a thinker. He is meticulous. And he does speak slowly, but you can't skim John's books because the sentences all have such weight to them, and you can't skim his interview because his words have weight to them too. And that was sort of interesting for me to, uh, to find out. Yeah, you mentioned at the top that he has such complex sentences and that he has bizarre circumstances in his books that you come to accept as real. That's, that's part of, I think, his genius, if I can use that word. It's, it's, it's probably overused these days, but his, part of his genius is that he can do that. He can take you to places that you, if you think about it, they're not logical, but you accept them. You suspend reality, and you can accept what John says. He can make you accept what you might think is the totally exceptional. Yes, he does. He gets you invested in the bizarre, bizarre characters, bizarre situations, bizarre endings, bizarre beginnings. And yet somehow, as I say, they're totally grounded in reality. And I always enjoy the ride. So, John Irving, we hope you enjoyed our conversation with John. As we've mentioned, we're going to pair each principal interview in our podcast with a discussion with a local bookstore uh, somewhere in the country. Uh, We want to hear what's selling in various parts of the country, also what kind of regional writers uh, they might find uh, that we should pay attention to. So tonight, or today, 
or this morning, or whenever you happen to be listening to this. Uh, the bookstore is Magic City Books in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Jeff Martin from Magic City Books. It is so nice to have you in the bookcase with Kate and Charlie. I wonder what's selling big in Tulsa? Well, you know, it's been an interesting year um, because we are about a year out now from the centennial of the Tulsa Race Massacre, which marked its 100th anniversary last May, May and June. And, you know, we've seen a huge uptick in interest and titles about that topic since then, because, of course, the it had been known locally, regionally, but I think that culmination of all the media that that anniversary garnered really turned the eyes of the not just the country but even an international eyes on Tulsa so we actually made a whole section of our store because of the amount of titles that came out about that topic and we're talking nonfiction of course but also historical fiction a lot of children's titles. There's almost you know, there's probably 30, 40 books that came out over the last year or so about that topic. So we now have a whole section about that. You, as a bookstore, support lots of different initiatives and events. But I want to ask, I wish I could go. You have an annual slumber party? Yes. Tell, tell me about the slumber party, how it came about. And more importantly, what do you guys do at the slumber party? <laughs> so we're a nonprofit bookstore, so we have some flexibility to kind of do things and be fun in ways that other places may not be, although anyone could do this, and I hope they do, uh, which is um, a bookstore slumber party. So every year in, in the spring, there's Independent Bookstore Day, pre-pandemic. Uh, we thought, what if on the Friday night before Independent Bookstore Day, we treat it like Christmas Eve, and we have people come in. They bring in a air mattress or they bring in a sleeping bag and they can camp out in the store. And then on, on the morning of independent bookstore day, they wake up in the store and part of their tickets, everybody buys a ticket. Part of your ticket includes a book. So you get to go pick out any book you want. This year we're taking it up even three or four notches because we've partnered with a local camp kind of glamping camping company and we're actually going to have tents in the store so each person will get their own kind of private pup tent in the bays of the books all that and they get an air mattress they get a like electric lantern we're even going to do s'mores outside on a grill we're going to do all kinds of stuff (laughs) and we're going to have we always have a guest author join us too and the, the, the audience or the guests don't know who that is so it's always a surprise um so it's just a super fun way to use a space in a different way. And you would think like, why would people want to sleep on the floor of a bookstore? And the people that do really do. I really do. <laughs> I really, really do. It's a wonderful <laughs> idea. And, and I think both Kate and I have been so impressed with the way that independent bookstores have found to distinguish themselves. I mean, they are critical to a community. But there are so many that are have finding finding ways to just to be different. But in some ways, our our smallness is in some ways our biggest strength because it gives us a chance to pivot. You know, we're not locked into certain things. We can try things. I always say, you know, we're small enough to where if we try something and it works great, we're going to get a lot of attention. But we're also small enough to where if we try something and it bombs, no one will notice. We're about you know five thousand square foot bookstore. Uh, we have a very focused, curated collection. 
but our ideas in some ways are limitless. We can do whatever we want. You have a bookstore. What hooked you? What made you want to do this? And was there a book in your youth that just made you want to devote your life to books? We had a long-running bookstore here in town called Steve's Books and Sundries, which was over 60 years old. It was like one of these old school <laughs> places that was, it was a bookstore, but it was also like, if you needed, uh, I don't even know what, you know, Zippo lighter refuel. I don't know what else, what else you could get anything you wanted there. Right. They closed in 2014 because the owner who passed away, his kids didn't, you know, didn't want to take it on. And it was our last indie bookstore that sold new books. We have some great used bookstores, but that was that. So that's when I kind of started thinking, what if we could do something in a different way? And that's where we kind of had this nonprofit idea to where we always viewed bookstores as kind of a community service. And the way people feel about bookstores, even though most of them are for-profit retail organizations, is the same way they feel about a library oftentimes, or the way they feel about an arts organization like a museum. The other question is what book got me into, into stuff? It's hard to always nail down. That's, of course, like a gotcha question for any book lover. That's almost impossible to say. But I think the book that sticks with me the most over time, it's got to be Lord of the Flies, probably, because every year I get older and I think about it or I reread it, it's almost shocking to me what he was able to understand and relay about the base instincts of humanity in a very dark and not necessarily uh, optimistic way, but seeing something about people and then using the tool of telling it through children. I think we underestimate the impact of that book to this day. One of my favorite books in the world is A Prayer for Owen Meany, and I reread it every couple of years. He was big for me as a young person, too. I remember reading Garp or reading Hotel New Hampshire, and I thought he was the Dickens of the last part of the 20th century, you know, his, his ability to create so many characters and, and all that stuff. Jeff Martin, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Magic City Books to be found on East Archer Street in Tulsa. People, when they're in town, should stop by. That's the independent bookstore for Tulsa. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Iru Ekpenobi, and Elizabeth Russo. One, one more note about John Irving, our principal interviewee today. He talked about the name of his last big novel, his 15th novel, which is now being written and that comes out this fall. He had two prospective titles for it. One was Darkness as a Bride, and the other was Rules for Ghosts. And he asked us to pick which one of them we liked, not having read the manuscript and not knowing anything about it, but, but we, we each had a favorite. But he scrapped both of them. And now the book that'll be out this fall is called The Last Chairlift. I don't know how that relates to the others, but that's John. He could call it making a passionate case for head lice and bag bugs, and I would probably still read it. That's how much I love his writing. Uh, so we are without a guest sign off this week, so I will sign off for us, and I will go ahead and say, may we all live happily ever after. Please join us next week. Thank you.
As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.